Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. I am Catherine Troyer, and I'm delighted, as I am so often delighted, to be joined by Tony Tresca. Howdy! This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our discussion over 1997's Scream 2. amazing to me when these films come out right on top of each other these scream films just came out back to back to back and i guess that makes sense because uh the writer who wrote the original scream kevin williamson when he dawson's creek of yeah (laughs) of dawson's creek fame kevin williamson and a guess of the Scream yeah, trilogy. You know, and, and this minor horror text that we're talking about. Yes. <laughs> he When he wrote the original Scream, he also had developed a like five-page pitch for both Scream 2 as well as Scream 3 to kind of entice the producers that they're buying not just a horror script, but a horror franchise. It's interesting that you say that because I definitely feel that Scream 2 feels connected in a way that that you can tell they were like, but this isn't where the story ends. I'll be curious to know your thoughts once you've had a chance to watch Scream 3, because to me, that's my least favorite film out of all five of them. Mm-hmm. And and it's my least favorite because honestly, it feels the the least connected. It feels the most sort of like shoved into, you know, like square peg round hole type feel. Uh, so it's it's wild to me that this was an intentional conclusion to the to the narrative to yeah to the trilogy and i guess just a scream disclosure i've seen scream one uh, several times this was my first time watching scream two and i have seen the 2022 scream but no scream three or four yet and you've seen you've seen them all (laughs) i've seen them all i've seen them all (laughs) many many times and i you know, we go back to the the adage of that we used for Nightmare on Elm Street, where like a bad nightmare is still a good horror film. Yeah, you know, a bad scream is still a film I'm willing to watch. So you know, Scream Three, when we get to it, I'm still I'll still watch it and rewatch it. But I really like Scream Two, yeah, for me so too. many reasons. And one of them is is that you and I, in our Venn diagram of horror comedy, also really are fond of college horror comedy that that's true we have like really like we've like black christmas we really like the happy death day films and now i guess we both really like scream too just to name a few of our college age horror romps that we love because there's something about college that is it's the perfect liminal space yeah because you're you're not a quote child anymore but you're not a quote adult either you are, if you're that traditional, like, 18 to 24-year-old college student. Right. There's all of this stuff that happens on college campuses that only makes sense on college campuses. And one of them is 
Greek life, right? <laughs> it's a good example. Uh, and the, another thing is uh, how the college theater circuit runs and operates. The, uh, the fact that so much of this third act um, is set in a college theater feels particularly truthful. As exactly. a <laughs> it does. You're like, yeah, that makes sense that, you know, this would lead to death and destruction. Yeah. In fact, I think I think the only part that feels inauthentic is that one of the theater kids wasn't the killer. Yeah, I was like, where I, I honestly, although I may even argue that Liv Schreiber's Cotton Weary, he's a theater kid at heart. He's dramatic, a little drama oh, king. I'm a huge fan of, of Liv Schreiber. And every time I see him in something, I'm just reminded that I need to see more of him. Mm -hmm. One of the shows I just can't believe I haven't started watching yet is Ray Donovan, which apparently has been on for seven seasons now. And yeah, can you imagine seven seasons of of Leif Schreiber? But you're so correct that Cotton Weary, again, I have to pause. If you listen to the Scream episode, you you heard that I always want to call him Cotton Mathers. Um, Cotton Weary, I want more from him. He's such a good character. And he's such an interesting character because he, like you said, he's he's a drama queen, mm-hmm. but he also kind of deserves to be, right? Like he was wrongfully imprisoned, and they make that explicitly clear. But yeah, I, I think we could pause a moment and be like, let's talk about how serious that is. That he has been, you know, he just wants to have some retribution, and let's face it, the government is never going to give him restitution. Yeah. It's pretty wacky what happens to him, uh, what happens to so many of these characters throughout. But before we get into that, maybe let's uh, do a brief summary so that yes. all of our screamers out there can scream along to this with the information of the plot. And as always, remember that we will 100% be spoiling things. So if you don't know who our ghost-faced killer or killers is, you bum, should bum. pause it right now. Watch the movie. Because Tony's going to be spoiling it for us. Yay! Yes, indeed. So this is set two years after the events that occurred in Woodsboro. We now find that Sydney is attending Windsor College in Cincinnati. And there appears to be Gail Weathers is doing very well, having made a best-selling book about Sydney's life and adapted into a major motion picture called Stab. (laughs) sound familiar to any horror franchise that we might be actively watching no just me okay so then stab comes out there are some killings that happen ghost face is back it looks like we've got a copycat killer on the hands here except this copycat killer is not in high school they're in college scream Two, college edition here we go (laughs) yay yeah let's let's talk about the opening scene because we have criticized cold openings, but mm-hmm. if there's one person who can do them or team, right, it's yeah. Craven and Williamson because they are really good at figuring out. So what is that thing we want people to to identify as the source of horror and how can we embed that into the cold opening? So in sc- the first scream, it's just that like premise of this sort of senseless yet somehow targeted murder, right? And scream right. two, it's that relationship that we're going to spend the entire film wrestling with between fantasy and and reality, right? Fact yeah. and fiction. And I have to say, there is something really desperately terrifying about being killed in a crowd. Being killed in a crowd. Um, I think being killed in a crowded movie theater, too. Yes. Particularly, like, I think 
after a lot of the events that have happened in movie theaters here in America in the recent years that made these that opening scene even more impactful. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's been recontextualized. I truly, it's recontextualized. Also, I think it's interesting to just talk about that opening scene. It's like that rowdiness of a crowd is really not something that I've experienced in a while. They're like fully masked. Everybody just really engaged in it. Particularly once COVID hit, it's now just small theaters. I'm in theaters with maybe, maybe three, four, five other people, 10 if I'm lucky. It's crazy just to think about how different it is and the recontextualization of that opening scene. And there's two two cultural moments that you've referenced in there that offers us that recontextualization. So there's the pandemic, mm-hmm. and then and then there are the the shootings that happened, particularly uh, with the Batman movies in Colorado, right? That have made it so that you know wearing costumes and things like that, having fake weapons, is no longer an option. And so for multiple reasons, right? We will never be again in a position like that. But also for multiple reasons, that scene that we will never experience again is somehow that much more terrifying, right? Because we're like, look at all those people crammed next to each other. Mm -hmm. And also, you don't know who's the killer. And so knowing where we are now makes it somehow, it both dates the scene, but it also makes it more timely, if that makes sense. And it also kind of like, I was really enticed by the energy of that crowd. It had a real Buccanesian energy. In which we'll get into more of the Greek themes that are directly inspired in yes. this very film a little bit later, particularly in the third act. But I thought that that was definitely what that spirit of the crowd was kind of capturing into. And Bacchanesian energy, which is, comes from like the spirit of Dionysus in Greek culture, can, is known to make crowds. It's very infectious. It made crowd go wild and crazy. And while that's both a good thing, those highs can also be incredibly dangerous, like we see in that opening scene that it does ultimately turn dangerous for the young couple who goes to see stab exactly and and even though it's dangerous for those two because they're killed by a killer mm-hmm. there is this this sort of commentary being offered to us as only craven can do about at what point does that mania become unhealthy even if you're not killing because so much of this film is, is, again, asking us to think about what is our role and obligation as consumers of, of horror in particular. And I think the classroom scenes, right? Yeah. Which we can talk about that in a second. But the classroom <laughs> scenes are a good example of them sort of asking us to wrestle with our culpability. Not to mention the fact that, you know, our second killer, the friend, mm-hmm. he he's wanting Mickey. to make right. Mickey, right? He's wanting to make a film. He's wanting to make a sequel. He's the one that I always forget. I always remember that it's Billy's mom is the one of the killers, but I, I often forget that Mickey's the second one in part because of something you said earlier, which is that he just looks so creepy. I'm just like, he can't be him. He's way too obvious. But then, of course, yeah, you know, before, it ends up being him every time. <laughs> before the podcast, we were talking about like whether or not I, uh, you had asked me if I had figured out who the killers were before. And I, I had not guessed that it was Laurie Metcalf's uh, Debbie Salt or Miss Loomis uh, was the killer. I had not guessed that one, but I had definitely guessed that Mickey was because I was just like, he's so creepy. And I was I could not imagine that they would do the boyfriend twice in a row. Yeah. Uh, the classroom scenes are really interesting as someone who teaches in part because even the most lively conversations I've I've had as an instructor or a student, and I've had lively conversations, are not like 
thesis level discussions, right? Where like everyone has seen all the films and can, you know, make these astute observations about, well, the types of things that Randy talks about. But even though it's it's not realistic to, to real life, it is what this film needs because this film is asking us again and again, the franchises, right? To consider what do you do with that knowledge, right? Like how do you use that knowledge and how can you use that knowledge in not just harmful ways, but I think also as, as Randy kind of illustrates in positive ways. Mm-hmm. Like, cause Randy is really trying, and I think Randy is like really trying to help which is ultimately, I guess, since this is a horror movie, why he has to be punished. Yeah, uh, I really wish he would have. I, he's I one know. of my favorite characters. I really, his death was amazing, it but was. I really wish that he was in three. I, I agree. I was so sad. I did not, well, I guess I kind of knew Randy was going to die eventually, but I didn't want it to be in this one because yeah. I was like, we need his iconic bits. I'm like, is that maybe, maybe that's why Scream 3 doesn't work as well. That's my prediction. No Randy to to make it as make it all cohesive together because that's what he does he comes in and he just it's basically just like Wes Craven sitting down and being like all right so here's the things that don't normally work about a horror movie and so then I'm gonna do this is what I'm not gonna do laying it out laying it out and then you get to see what he does do instead and that's always so much fun it is and it adds a really delightful element to that to that meta commentary which leads me, so normally we, we have scholarship, but as you've probably guessed from our other franchise experiences, by the time you get to the second and third films in a franchise, usually there's a lot less written, right? There's a, yeah. a lot <laughs> written about that first text. There's a lot written about like the ones that come way later, right? Like so Scream 4 has a lot. Scream 5 doesn't have anything yet because it just came out, but it will. It will have its own stuff. But two and three just kind of get lumped into trilogy stuff. And most of the trilogy stuff is really talking about the the meta narrative aspects and also the the issues of, of motherhood. Right. And and because there's so much about moms and sons in and particularly the first three films that definitely deserves further examination. And it's interesting that in a film that is supposed to be about those college years where you're claiming yourself as an adult and sort of setting yourself free from childhood that Mrs. Loomis comes on, right? And she's like, no, you don't get to be an adult because once you're a child of someone, you're always that person's child. Even if they're a killer, even if they're, you know, 60 years old, you're, they're still, you know, your baby. And that's a really interesting layer to add to to Scream 2. Yeah, rest in peace, Freud. You would have loved Scream 2. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and Scream 1, right? Because there's, that, one, there's yeah. that line where Sydney's like, Ew, you know, like, because he's like, my mommy left me. And (laughs) but yeah, Scream 2 really makes explicit, just in case you missed it, those Freudian levels. There is, of course, also this sort of Greek element. So Freud talks a lot about Oedipus and uh, Electra and things like that. And, And Scream 2 does not have Oedipus, but it is still having... Another very well-known Greek play, the first play in the trilogy, the Oresti, Agnemimnon, which also has mother issues, right? Because the the play is is about Agamemnon has sacrificed his daughter, Iphigenia, and then Clymenestra is like, nope, you just killed my child. 
So she kills Agamemnon. And then there's also Agamemnon's father, who at one point cooks his brother's children and serves him his own children. So there's there's lots of like parental issues that the Greeks were real fond of. We're going to talk about this more in our spooky scrap. But I think, Tony, you're, you're correct to kind of point out that like what a obvious way, but a really fantastic way to build this in to remind us that we have always had mommy issues from uh-huh. the beginning. It's it's all Greek to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you've been holding on to that little chosen nugget of a pun for a while now i can feel it i i saw the smile emerge on your face you have a specific smile you do when it's time for you to say something terribly punny and and uh, yeah. and our, that's i guess just one of the downsides of only doing this as podcast form yeah that. you don't you don't get to see and it, you know what it reminds me of it's it's the jim carrey version of the grinch uh-huh, like where it course. gets a little too big for your face and i'm like please stop don't Whatever's in your mind, don't say it aloud. And then you do. And I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Let's talk about let's talk about the mom, uh, Mrs. Loomis, Mrs. Loomis, a.k.a. Salt. Debbie Salt, a.k.a. character actress, Laurie Metcalf, a.k.a. gift to our generation, inspirational <laughs> actress. She's iconic in this. She, I love this character in here first the introduction of debbie salt i love really like her interactions with courtney cox oh my I, gosh i love both the like the ways that she specifically is able to get under courtney cox's gail weathers skin yes it's, her questions are so specific and i also do love then the what gail gets to do of like deconstructing her and putting her back in her yes. place their their interactions are very sharp and so several okay. of the the other women that Gail Weathers butts heads with in three, four, and five mm-hmm. are are characters that she's butting heads with in large part because of their or her perception of their relationship with Dewey, right? Uh-huh. So in three, four, and five, there each of them, there's a character that Dewey sort of takes under his wing slash serves as a a mild romantic interest, and so in those ones, Gail is like stay away from him he's mine even if i'm not with him he's mine but what i like about debbie salt is that she gets under gail's professional skin Uh right but for doing everything that she does does. and and so there's this it is it is and it's it's funny because it's real easy to be like really you're getting the scoop for your local newspaper but we assume that's how gail got started so there's this kind of fascinating element there in that like I find Debbie Salt also really annoying um, because you're supposed to, but she's not really that different from Gail Weathers. So does that mean I'm supposed to find Gail? Right? Like, and it kind of raises some really interesting questions, like you said, uh, serving as a spoil. Mm-hmm. So she's great. And then I really love her. Her is the killer. It makes a lot of sense. I feel her, her motivations are pretty, pretty clear and a timeless Mm-hmm. way like we like we were just alluding to and i think that laurie metcalf does such a good job with all of those like her monologues that she's yes. given as well as just like the running when she's running around through the set in the third act yes. just trying to find um sydney um and sydney's dropping bags on her lights all these crazy flashing things and it it's great she's great <laughs> it is she so she's great and that scene's great because Theater scenes are just inevitably going to be full of of drama, literal and figurative, and so it works so nicely. Of but course. I I think 
what I find so interesting about that character is that in in the original Scream, we don't hopefully feel like Billy and Stu are okay or uh, given permission to do what they do, right? Like, you should read those characters as being in the wrong and entitled and nothing about the, like, my mom and dad got divorced, so I had to kill your mom and I'm going to kill you. Nothing about that should should make sense to you. Uh-huh. But there is an element, and I'm not justifying the murder part, but there is an element where it makes more sense that Mrs. Loomis would blame her son's literal killer, which is right. Sydney, and that, you know, especially if she hasn't been around her son, so she didn't see, you know, what an obnoxious little jerk he was, that she would be like, this is my baby, right? And and he's right. always under my protection. And I guess it also brings up, like, this question of, like, the it really points out this vigilante justice that is kind of yes. really, that's popular throughout horror, particularly, like, the slasher genre. And it's asking the question of, like, what happens to the people you leave behind? Yes. Even the killers. Like, the killer leaves people behind, too, unless they're yes. just totally isolated. And in this case, he wasn't. And so when Miss Loomis comes back and is like talking, it's very, it's very into this fate concept of like, isn't it just so fitting that then you enact your version of justice based on your morals and what you believe to be right. And so you've killed this person. So now I'm here. I'm doing the same thing. Um, What's the difference? And there's also tied into that element of vigilante justice is this gendered element of, of motherhood. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that comes up a lot in horror are presentations of the of what's known as the monstrous mother or the monstrous mother figure. And, you know, we we've talked about this. We talked about it actually at length in our episode on the Babadook because because that film is about mother. That, that's what it's about. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what a lot of the scholarship was about, too. But what's interesting about motherhood and, and the sort of monstrous motherhood concept is that women are in this sort of catch 22 in terms of if they are not maternal then something must be wrong with them right like mm-hmm. why don't you want to take small little children under your wings and nurture them and love them and and devote your life to them but when you do too much of that right when you do it in excess it's also monstrous right when you are too maternal or don't let your children go or devote too much of yourself Mm-hmm. And so this film manages re- in a really sophisticated way in a character that is not one of our primary characters, even if because they're not one of the core survivors, even if they're a big character to give us both of those things. Right. Is Mrs. Loomis, is she a monster because she left her family and caused her son, quote, caused her son to have to kill some people? Mm-hmm. Or is she a monster because she's clinging too tightly to her image as mother and not letting her son and killer go in, you know, now that he's gone. And and the film makes us have her be a monster in both situations, which makes us ask ourselves, are we perhaps being a bit unfair in how we're yeah. crafting what it means to be a woman and to be the villain or the monster or, you know, whatever word you want to use there. Yeah. And so I think that's a, at really fascinating things to, to explore, and they don't really give any clear answers, which is so typical of Wes Craven. Why? It is. Why the only the only stories worth telling are the ones you can't answer. 
It's, yeah. And so I, he doesn't give us any satisfying answer there. And then with Mickey, his motivation is like, I guess, a little bit more of, the, I guess, that typical secondary character in Scream. I guess yes. it's like that established thing of like, they just do it because of the movies. Yes. They, yes. uh, they love that. They love that movie violence. And so now they're a real bad guy. And it, it is funny. I think there should have been two killers. I, I don't I don't know if I would have chosen Mickey because it felt a little like you said, it felt a little bit too much like what was happening in Scream. But I, I did really appreciate the, you know, Debbie's like clear statement of yes. uh, just exhaustion, right, of working with like a 19 or 20 year old guy and just being like, whatever, he served his purpose. And then, you know, she just shoots him because she's like, I can't yeah. I can't do this anymore. And, and that. That was it's, hysterical. It's so also clear. It's just she has so much control. She is the one who's gone through this recruitment process. She went on the message board. Yes. She found this guy out. She told him exactly what to do. And yet then he still is like parading around as if he is this mastermind. Yes. And then he's so it's it is very satisfying to watch uh It is. And it to also watch Miss you know, it, take him out. It's also another instance of like this maternal and and son sort of role, right? Because she kind of takes him under her murderous wing, mm-hmm. but then he becomes his own creature, a monster. And so, something that Craven and and Williamson, because you know Dawson's Creek, gosh darn it, you don't have to like Dawson's Creek. You probably Tony wouldn't appreciate it because it's you really had to be like a teen in those moments. But it will always hold a special place in my heart. But Williamson is just as meta as Craven. Right, the whole premise of of Dawson's Creek is that Dawson, who bears an awful lot of similarities to Kevin uh-huh. Williamson, wants to be a filmmaker and spends most of the series making films that are about his life so that we're watching a film of the life of the right. Um, yeah, that's meta. That's- yeah, it's, it's so meta. The only, <laughs> the only way that Dawson is different is that Kevin Williamson, I believe, uh, if I read this correctly, is gay and he had to build that in through other characters right because and then in the early 2000s you weren't going to have a primary lead gay character but but all of that is to say that 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 there's so much about this film that is asking us to consider like at what point does something cease to be the property of the creator and start to become the property of the fans or of you know the entity itself and mm-hmm. and I think Craven wrestled with this a lot because, you know, he was like, please, why is Freddy's Dead a film? Why is this happening? And yeah. then he was just like, let's pretend it didn't happen. Let's just uh, take it out. Yeah. And and in this film, we get that from Stab Onward, right? Like, does Sydney's life belong to her anymore? Because it's now a, a movie. It's now a franchise. And if it does belong to her, does it also belong to her, like the people, like you said, who she's left in her wake of, of chaos? Uh, and that's a really interesting question. And it opens that, ba- it really does open that bag of worms, particularly uh, like just with like how it treats the media and anyone who can blow up because of just being anywhere near Sydney and or any killing types of killings, which is, again, it's scary how that this was coming out then. And it's only proven a lot of these things that are scary true the more time that has happened because killing people has been a, and has been a really good way to get attention based just because of how the media is set up. If it leads, it bleeds kind yes. of mentality. So it's just been it's one of, another one of those things that has aged very frighteningly well. Yes. 
as has just the idea of of being well known because of who you are as opposed to what you've done right yeah. i mean this is so this is 97 we haven't even gotten into a world with the kardashians or social media influencers or all of these people that are famous for being themselves and mm-hmm. and yet this film is giving us a pretty clear indication of why that might not be ultimately the best way to experience life and it's only going to get that theme is only going to get more relevant as the films increase because as the films continue we move into right and yeah. the eras of of these people and and even early on it has it's developing on this idea that he kind of has already done in new nightmare is this way that the media and the public specifically treats female celebrities and yes. the specific like ways in which that is just a very toxic relationship and that it's always looking for some way to kind of cut you down. People love you because they hate you and hate you because they love you kind of thing. It, and I, I like that. I really like the scene in this where she's like has the phone and with the guy who is prank calling her using the ghost face thing. Yes. And then she's given that moment to like kind of clap back and cut him down, take him, knock him down, remind him, hey, you're just a human too. I don't know why you're doing this to me. I thought it was really good, really nice, clever moment in there. I think undoubtedly one of the best parts about the franchise and and what makes the subsequent films so successful including scream 2 is precisely that that we we get to see the wear and tear of being the final girl and Mm -hmm. and being in the final girl's sort of circle because sydney is she's she starts this film broken Mm -hmm. she's trying not to be she doesn't want to be and there's sort of this weird Although no character in the film at any point says, like, why haven't you gotten over this yet? As opposed to Billy, who said that in uh, yeah, the, the, in the first, first one. one. There is nevertheless, you can see that she feels that pressure to to tuck away her trauma and yeah. to not be a nuisance, right? To, to not metaphorically bleed all over everyone. But she's traumatized. Her, and Because her, her trauma doesn't allow her to cohesively be inserted into any large group setting yes because she kind of sees she knows firsthand that uh in these large groups that doesn't always uh mean safety and so she's not easily coherent she's not dropping her boundary she's not allowing that and instead she's taken the much uh, another path which that's that isolation isolation isolate isolate path and that's scary yeah it is scary and but so common. But so common and so against a narrative that we reinforce, which is that once you get to college, you get to reinvent yourself, right? You get mm-hmm, to, to be mm-hmm. this like new creature. And that is such an American conceit, this idea that, you know, you can just constantly reinvent yourself. It's not that you can't, but you are going to carry with you the scars and experiences, better and worse of where you've been before and you should right if you don't Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then then you've made a mistake right right but this film is really struggling with that ultimately again i one of the things that i do really like about where this film is and this idea around that is sydney is also not right for isolating herself and cutting her off she only is able to come like she's helped out by other people close in her life eventually that she will kind of let in later on down the film and while she may have to carry out the final moments and 
on her own, she does get that strength of like at least Dewey and Gale back on her side. And weirdly enough, also in some kind of twisted way, also Cotton. <laughs> right. It, in like that weird, twisted, messed up, yeah. disturbing his, way. His like insistence, uh, that scene in that third act where he's like, okay, I don't want to shoot you. I really don't. But would that be best for me? Uh, that, that sort of internal struggle he's having was yeah. really good because he's not a good character. He's not a good guy. Not really. And and the film is, makes it clear that just because you were wrongfully imprisoned doesn't mean you're a saint. It doesn't right. mean you're bad either. And, and there's this really interesting struggle, but you're so correct that, that Sydney has to rely on, on people. And the other characters have to remember that too, right? Gail yes. and Dewey are like, oh yeah, we actually do work well as a team. Oh yeah, you know, two is better than one. And then that constant sort of reminder that even if it puts you in jeopardy, it also is your greatest potential to survive. Because groups are scary, as this movie tells us over and over again, yes. through Greek life, through this kind of, the theater set scenes and like the mask thing that happens there. The opening scene at the movie theater. Yes, groups are scary, but groups are also, the, and other people are also the only things that can help you out in that situation. Like, straight up, Sydney would be dead without another person in that final scene. So literally the film is reinforcing that. Even if you don't like that, it is human. You have to rely on other people. And yes. I, I think that's a really good, interesting message and way to discuss trauma and the response that it forces us to have in interpersonal relationship and specifically the isolationistic tendencies that come from trauma and how, yeah, it's a nice, it is a very justified reaction, but also it's only going to isolate you. Yeah, the film makes a distinction between like, mob versus group or or yeah. there's some word i'm not sure what the word is because it's not always a mob but but there's a difference between her core team and and the movie theater people or one of the scenes i think is beautifully done in terms of cinematography but also just in terms of it being really creepy is that scene that you were referring to when they're doing the dress rehearsal and mm -hmm. you know everyone's wearing the masks and then and then the ghost face killer is in there amongst amongst them although actually we never know for sure if she's yeah. hallucinating that or if that's real it's such a good scene i mean it's just it really like it's visually beautiful it's very kind of disturbing but again there's that idea of like when when you're in a group where you're not your authentic selves where you are literally or figuratively wearing masks mm -hmm. it is going to be really hard to build those connections that you need to survive yeah i think that is really interesting the idea of the masks of, and how masks have different meanings across cultures yes. like the greek idea of a mask is not it's actually not scary like those masks that they were wearing was like they would use those masks in comedies those yeah. were just their they, masks were the only way in which they did theater and they performed they were kind of a fun thing honestly but now our idea of what a mask is has shifted so greatly that it is now seeing that scene is disturbing rather than yes. as it would originally have been for the, for like a Greek audience of being like, Oh yeah, the masks are kind of cool. Like, yeah, sure. This is just what we do. Right. And we, this kind of takes us all the way back to like Halloween, right? Cause the Michael Myers mask is just a captain Kirk mask that's been spray painted. So mm -hmm. we had this period of time where, you know, wearing masks was, was more joyful. Right. And, and less sort of inherently disturbing. And, and, 
now that we're in a pandemic, I don't think people are terrified of, of masks in the sense that they, they look at it and like scream, but all of our conversations about masks that we seem so insistent on having about like, when should you wear a mask and how can you read people when they're wearing a mask and, and all this stuff, you know, I, I can't help but feel that you're, you're so correct that there would have been a time when people would have just been like, okay, <laughs> but we're, mm-hmm. we're not there anymore. The, the last thing I want to talk about is you had mentioned something that you had done found in your research. And that was that there were several changes that had to be made to things because of, of potential leakages, because again, they, they had planned this sort of before the first film even came out and that Craven sort of was making some, some gambles in terms of what was in the film for the rating purposes, right? Cause he didn't want to yeah. get a, another NC 17. So would you just give some of that background for the film? So it got leaked out that Derek, the boyfriend, and Hallie, Sydney's friend in college, were actually the real killers. Oh. Um, and then it, when that was leaked, they obviously that was switched to be Mickey and Debbie. I'm glad it wasn't the boyfriend again. I, I'm glad as well. Although they... And there's a lot of speculation around this because there are also rumors that it was supposed to be all four of them at one point. Derek, Hallie, Mickey, and Debbie. That would have been kind of interesting. That could have worked, but it may have also been like, Derek and Hallie don't really have any clear motivation. So I guess I am still kind of glad they didn't do it. I guess they would have built that into the script, though. What I would like to see in a Scream film eventually, though, is for there to be either two separate killers or two separate sets of killers that have very different motivations and are all yeah. actually getting in each other's way. That and so you're like, funny. you're like, why is Susan, why, why would they have killed Susan? She does. She's not even connected to anyone else. And it's like, well, she's connected to one set of killers. Right. And then Billy, or not that Billy. would make a fantastic yeah. television show. It like would. I know that they've already done a stream TV show, but yes. we could just pretend that they didn't. And we could just do this one instead. Yeah. And instead of focusing on like the, the victims, the two you focus on the two team of killers. Yes. Um, it's a totally different way for Scream. I anyway, okay. So if I also any, any producers want to do this, we'll yes. hit, hit us up. <laughs> I also would love to see, and I think a Scream film would be the perfect place for it. A a someone who wants to be the victim, but the yeah. killers aren't interested. Like I I would love for Ghostface killers like there, and there's this character who you know that awkward moment when you're like trying to get past someone in the hall and you both shift left and yes. then you both shift right and then you know you're like sorry i want that to happen but the ghost face killer is trying to like not kill this person and the person's like trying to be stabbed and they're like oh oh you almost got me there <laughs> you know and the ghost face killer's like stop it and he's like oh oh do you sure you don't want to stab me like i just yeah. think there'd be some really interesting things that could happen okay so potentially two different killers potentially four killers were there other spoilers that okay. were leaked uh, yes, the entire plot was leaked on the internet. Oh my gosh. Um, and this is like, like early days of the internet. This is early days. So like everybody, so then after that, they had to like totally switch how they were doing production. They locked it down. They didn't tell any, they didn't give the last 10 pages of the script out to the cast until the very end of the process. Yeah, it, they were really restrictive on who was allowed in and out of set. And some of that rewriting stuff has been de- later in life. Like 2017, Kevin Williamson was like, Actually, the Derek Kelly killer duo was a dummy ending the whole time. In Interesting. In case the script was leaked, 
but all of it, obviously all this is after the fact. So you can kind of say whatever you want. I guess yeah, we'll yeah. never truly know what happened, like how much was related to the leakage and how much was related to just like that was always the intent the whole time. But either way, I think it worked out for the best. Yeah, you do need to be a little suspicious of people that know how to craft meta narratives, right? Because they're going to create then a meta narrative. Yeah. And so that was one instance. Another interesting thing was like kind of Craven's relationship with the ratings board, the MPAA. He had a lot of trouble with the first film, getting it down from NC-17 to R. They had to submit multiple drafts and eventually one of the film's producer just had to like kind of be like, just let give them the R rating and negotiated with them directly, got the R rating, whatever. So Craven was really, really worried with this film that he was going to have to fight uh, them to get that R rating. So in the script and in the film that he showed them, he actually included more violence in I it love than it. he had wanted. Like, Craven was like, I'm going to shoot this really long, gory scene of Randy's death with like everything going really long, focusing on it, showing it from all these different angles, when all I really want was like a throat slash. <laughs> and I'd be happy with that for this scene. But then he submitted this gory cut to the MPA, and they were like, this film is important enough that you can have whatever violence you want. We think the message is important enough. And so the ultimate gory cut is Scream 2, that this is the movie... This is the with the extra added violence that Craven didn't even actually want to put in there. But it's so interesting because this is just a total pivot from where the film from like where Craven was with yeah. this exact franchise just a couple of years prior. And I guess just sh I don't even know what that begins to show. Like, I guess the cultural conscience around horror changing around this franchise. I I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I can't help but feel that part of it is the the board's awareness that this film is commenting on these things as much as offering these things. Yeah. But I'm just honestly surprised that the board got it. If you've ever read or watched anything about how ratings happen, it's it's the Wild West. It is just oh, yeah. utter they can chaos they and it is so uh, idiosyncratic and, and just weird. But I'm I'm glad because I that that scene with Randy it's probably one of the best Oh, kill scenes in scene. the in the yeah in the film and it's again it's another one of those ones that's so disturbing because it's happening in in broad daylight and yeah. that is just something that that both craven with the directing and and williamson with the writing managed to capture really effectively how you can be alone in a crowd but be in a team you know and never be more powerful or you know something like that agreed yeah so this all all in all, this film was really, I found just incredibly interesting. I a couple like a couple weak spots, I think. This film does suffer, I think, from although it comments on it and the tropes of sequels of like just redoing things from the original. Yeah, this there film are... does do that <laughs> even though it says it's that's the trope of the sequels and they shouldn't do it. That is one of the things it does do. There are repeated scenes. There, this, like, there are a few moments that I, I think could have been stronger as as a stand on its own sort of thing. This is certainly mm -hmm. not the 150 out of 100 <laughs> that is scream. But but you're correct that it, it manages to to serve as a really powerful sequel. Maybe not a good film in its mm -hmm. own right, but certainly as a sequel. Yeah, it's very interesting and I I also like a lot of the elements that this film brings up in regard particularly in the opening sequence about race in horror. Although it was still in that weird era where it would like make the comments about race, but then still kill like those 
the two black characters in the opening scene and then have a lot of like stereotypical portrayals around race and then not really include a lot of people of color in yeah. the cast outside of that. So it was we're not going to get to period. that until Scream 22, right? Yeah. That we're going to start having just the like, hey, maybe not everyone just has to be by default white and yeah. straight. And it's interesting. So like I, it's clearly this is 1997 when Scream 2 is coming out. Just thinking about 19, I wasn't even around. I was not oh around gosh. then. And just thinking about like how much of the times have changed even when in just my lifetime. I'm like, I understand times have come a long way. But it's still interesting to have that textual awareness like in the script that there is problems in how people of color particularly black people in american horror are commonly portrayed and treated in horror society larger all of these things but then still also to repeat those flaws in your own film when you get like have that opportunity in the platform yeah both craven and and williamson are are real trailblazers in so many respects but i think the important thing to remember is that Rarely can someone be a trailblazer in every respect. Yeah. And and that's not great, right? Because when you're picking and choosing your battles, that means important battles are not being fought in that moment. But there is sort of this clear like, hey, here's another thing. Could someone else pick this up so that yeah. we can go back to that? And, and I think that's an important part of the entire Scream franchise is that it, you should watch these films as horror fans, but also as people that, that want to create horror you should watch these films and instantly be like, hey, I have an idea, right? Yeah. That's what should happen. And and I think that this film is like even a really good example of like using the limited impact that it does have because those couple opening scenes that it has are some of the film's strongest scenes like that does feature and is making direct explicit commentary on people of color and black people's portrayal in horror. I think those are the, some of the strongest scenes. So it's, I'm really glad that they were included and particularly in 1997, I'm really glad that they were doing some of this stuff. And it, yeah, it's interesting to see the development and how far we've come, even from that time, just now in terms of Black horror and the types of horror, store, horror stories that were being made now. So that is just like tip of the iceberg of some of our thoughts for Scream 2, a film that manages to start really strong, end really strong, maybe have a few moments in the middle that are not quite as powerful, but that serves as a really excellent continuation of what Scream, the first Scream, is offering to us. Tony, as people move on after having listened to this episode, what would we like them to do? Well, you can... Check out all of our social medias. Follow us and connect with us on there. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. What did you think of Scream 2, the Scream franchise? And what are you screaming for more of from us? Let us know on all of our social medias or by reaching out to us on our Gmail. Also, wherever you listen to your podcasts from, if you could just mosey on over there and maybe give us a quick rating over there, that would help us reach more people and build up our horror community. Um, yeah, so all of those things would be super ideal for getting in contact with us before our next episode. Yes, and speaking of our next episode, so for our next film, we thought we would sort of change things up a little bit and go with a black and white film, one that's earlier than most of the films that we're talking about, and one that I 
am not always sure is a horror film, even if it is often cited as giving us some of the framework of the slasher. And mm -hmm. what film am I talking about? 1960s Psycho. Yay, that's gonna be a, a very fun and exciting conversation. It will, I've never seen Psycho before, so I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to know your thoughts about it, and I'm excited to, to rewatch it. It's one that deserves rewatching pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening to our nightmares. And have a spectacular day. <laughs>